This message is brought to you by Moira Pentecostal Church. We hope that it will encourage, challenge, and inspire you in your walk with God. Isaiah chapter 54. And I just want to read a couple of verses, verses 11 to 13. And I want to read it from the authorized version. I normally read from the New King James, but I want to read it tonight from the authorized version, Isaiah chapter 54. I'm going to read verses 11 to 13. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors, and lay thy foundations with sapphires, And I will make thy windows of agates and thy gates of carbuncles or pearls, actually, that is, and all thy borders of pleasant stones. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord and great shall be the peace of thy children. These beautiful words spoken by the prophet Isaiah was a prophetic promise given by God to his people Israel pertaining to their city, the city of Jerusalem. The people had gone through very difficult days, very trying times, but no matter how hard the road, no matter how difficult the day, God had promised ultimate victory. Had we read down to verse 17, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. This is the heritage of the people of God. But not only is this chapter prophetic regarding Israel, but it's symbolic of the church. It speaks to us as well as to them of restoration, of building up again, of overcoming, of conquering. So let's look at these promises this evening and see what God will accomplish in and through our lives in spite of any present difficulties that we may be encountering. And if I look over a congregation at any given time, I can guarantee you that there will be people who will be encountering difficulties of all kinds, personal, within family, jobs, finances, you name it, difficulties. Now, remember the illustrations as I use here is about God building up again the broken walls of Jerusalem. Verse 11, he says, I will lay thy stones with fair colors and lay thy foundations with sapphires. When God rebuilds our lives, or at least a part of our lives that perhaps has been broken down, he begins with the foundation. If the foundation is shaky, then it's hard to build up on top of that. If you're to read Revelation 21, you'll see that the new Jerusalem The foundations of the New Jerusalem are precious stones. It is so important to have a good, sure foundation. Sapphires are second only to diamonds in strength. If you want to cut a sapphire, you can only cut it with a diamond. It is that hard. Our foundation has got to be strong. Anybody that's ever been to New York or has flown over it or into it, you are amazed. It's one of the most dramatic skylines of any city in the world. Isn't it, Rachel? 
It's your favorite place, I know. And it's, it, you know, it's only about 300 square kilometers. And there's 8 million plus people live on it. And Manhattan Island, which is where most of the skyscrapers are there, uh, I mean, it's just crammed with skyscrapers. And you wonder how in the world such a little place could hold all of that up until you realize its foundations. There are three different types of rock underneath the island that are very, very hard and strong and could hold anything up. And so there's a good foundation to build on. The Leaning Tower of Pisa was actually leaning over 17 feet at one point until they had to fix it or the whole thing was ready to collapse. The Albert clock in Belfast, as we said before, if you drive down that road, you see that leaning over, now they've fixed that. Why? Because either water or erosion was eating away at the very foundations of those famous landmarks. So we need a good, strong foundation. We need to be able to build in something. And so when God starts to rebuild our lives or a part of our lives, he goes right back to the beginning, right to the basics, right to the foundation. This building that we're in is 210 years old, would you believe? And even though there was a great bomb in Moira those few years ago, this thing stood rock steady. It never flinched. It never budged because it's got a good, strong foundation. Our foundation has got to be strong. Our foundation has got to be beautiful. I will lay thy stones with fair colors. So here we are speaking about spiritual strength and spiritual beauty. That's to be the foundation of every believer's life. Think of Jesus for a moment. Think of his strength and think of his beauty. Think of his strength in the garden when he was sweating as it were great drops of blood. Imagine the pressure, the tension, the stress, the struggle, the fight that was going on in the realm of the spirit to such a degree that beads of blood began to pop from his forehead. We can't even begin to imagine the struggle he must have been in at that moment. But what strength he had to be able to come through that. Think about him in the wilderness. And the Bible says that after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, then when he hungered, that's when the enemy came in. When his appetite was coming back and he was ravenous with hunger and he was probably weakened was spending 40 days and 40 nights fasting in the wilderness. And one, uh, I think it's Mark, says he was there with the wild beasts. And so that was a, a, a tremendous time of pressure and testing and trial. And the enemy came in strong when he was at his physically weakest point. The enemy came in and tempted him even with food to begin with. But look at his strength. He never flinched. He never backed down. He never yielded for one single second. He was so strong. What a foundation was in his life. Scriptures began to flow from him. From a little boy, he had been taught 
the word of God at his mother's knee. Like any young Jewish boy would have been taught. And right there when he needed that the most, it was there. And he was able to counteract the enemy's attacks with the word of God. Think about those moments around the cross when he was beaten and whipped and mocked and scourged and nailed to a tree and a crown of thorns pressed on his head and humiliated. Roman crucifixion was one of the most horrible, painful, long, lingering executions imaginable. And not only that, it was the most humiliating, hung naked in front of jeering crowds of people who would point the finger and mock. And yet in spite of all of that, he had such inner strength that he was able to handle all of that. And seven times he spoke from that situation and what words he spoke, what strength he showed. See his beauty and forgiving the adulterous woman. What a tender, touching moment that was when they dragged her through the streets and they threw him at his feet. Caught in the very act. But where was the other half? Takes two to tango. Where was the man? Why wasn't he dragged through the streets? He was as guilty as the woman. Maybe even more guilty. But it was just the woman. What embarrassment, what humiliation. For how Jesus tenderly and cleverly in such a beautiful way when he started to write in the sand and one by one all those accusers left. I would imagine he was very soft-spoken at that moment. I imagine he hardly even had to raise his voice. What he said and what he did was enough. And it was a beautiful, touching moment, and particularly for that woman above all people, the fact that Jesus said what he said and did what he did. Thinking about Jairus' daughter, in Mark chapter 5. Remember how this ruler of the synagogue came to Jesus. Verse 21, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with him and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. And we know then at that point that little woman with the issue of blood interrupted, interrupted that great multitude that was following the master. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 8.
And after the little woman was healed, well, verse 48, he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the master. This little girl was about 12 years old. It was his only daughter, the gospels say. And he had begged Jesus to come. He knew she was about to die. Time is of the essence. But the little woman interrupted. And that precious time was taken. And now it's too late. The little girl, in the meantime, has died. Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But look at this beautiful thing that Jesus said. When Jesus heard it. You know, if we had been standing there watching Jairus, his face would obviously convey what he felt in his heart. His heart must have just sank in that horrible, empty, broken feeling in his heart was shown on his face. There was some hope while Jesus was still coming. There was some hope when he's still going. But once he got the word, she's dead, all hope at that moment is gone. The rug is pulled out from under this man. And Jesus, looking, could see that immediately. And when he heard them speaking, what does he say? He said, do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. Isn't that beautiful? What encouragement that must have been at that moment for the Son of God to say that to him at that particular moment. It was wonderful. And when he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. It was obvious she was dead. But to Christ, she was just sleeping. But he put them all outside. And he took the hand, took the little girl by the hand and said, Little girl, arise. One of the other gospels he said, Talithi kumai, little girl, I say unto you, arise. I wonder did he, I wonder if she was lying on the bed, which she probably was. I wonder did he get down on his knees beside her. I wonder did he whisper that in her ear. Doesn't say, but I wonder at that moment. You know, whenever he raised Lazarus, he shouted with a loud voice. But I kind of get the feeling he didn't do that here with this little girl. Little girl, I say unto you, arise. Then her spirit returned and she arose immediately and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. 
What a touching, what a beautiful moment that must have been in that little room with Peter, James and John and the mum and dad and Jesus and the little girl. Wouldn't you love to have been in that room? Wouldn't you love to have been a servant maybe and slipped in and was watching the scene to see what Jesus was going to do and what he was going to say? And I get the feeling he was very, very, very tender. Feelings were raw. Parents were crushed. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Just believe. She shall be well. He did everything to allay their fears and their worries and their concern. And then at the moment, he just spoke that simple little phrase. Little girl, I say unto you, arise. And suddenly, her spirit returned. And she rose immediately. She was about 12 years of age. See his beauty. See his strength. Apostle Paul had a great foundation. He was very strong. When you see him on that ship in Acts 27 and he's a prisoner going to Rome, 276 prisoners in all, and he's the only believer among them, the only Christian. There was the soldiers, the sailors, and the prisoners. And out of that 276, there's just one who knows the Lord. And he warned them about going on this trip, and they wouldn't listen to him. The centurion listened to the captain of the boat because the south wind had blown softly, and they left the port. For then a great northeaster came up. You rotly done. A famous wind. Whenever we went on that cruise, Sally and I, what was it, two summers ago, uh, we left uh, a port in France somewhere, I forget what you call that port, Marseille. We left Marseille, and they told us at that time it was the time of the mistral wind. There's so many days a year when the mistral wind blows, and boy, it is strong, and it is cold. It is bitterly cold, because apparently it comes down from the Pyrenees or somewhere. And that was the night out in the mess. Boy, that boat was rocking and rolling. So it was, Sally said to me, see the next port? I'm going to get the first flight out of here. I'm gone. <laughs> that was enough. But we settled after that. And here they are in the midst of the sea. For days, they couldn't see the sun. For night, they couldn't see the stars. No small tempest had set upon us. And they started to throw stuff out of the ship, all the tackle and everything they could get their hands on. All they had left was the food for a while. It must have been awful. It was scary. They all thought they were going to die. And the apostle Paul, here's the strong man in the midst of all of these. They're not so strong now. All these centurions and the soldiers and all the rest of it. The sailors were wanting to escape. They were going to put a boat over the side and sail off. And Paul said, don't let them do that. Because Paul had prayed and he had fasted. He got the mind of God. He says, God has shown me that we'll all get safe to land. Not one of us will die in this ship if you listen to me. And so out from the midst of all of that chaos and fear and turmoil and tempest and storm, here's a man who's strong. He said, I've heard from heaven. Everything's going to be okay. The ship will be destroyed, but we're all going to make it safe to land. What strength. See him in the Philippian jail. 
Paul and Silas at midnight, remember they prayed and they worshipped and they sang and then that earthquake came and no wonder the jailer, knowing that the prison doors had flung open, knowing that the prisoners, as far as he was concerned, every last one of them probably had run away. And of course that meant that he would have to die. And so he was about to fall on his own sword and Paul stood up and says, do yourself no harm, we are all here. He took charge again. He was in charge of the whole thing. That was the strength of this man. In Acts chapter 23, just a little quick look here. Not for the first time. He's standing before accusers. Apostle Paul had been preaching in this area and some Jews recognized him and they stirred up all the other Jews in the city and wanted to kill him. And the Roman garrison there heard the tumult that was going on and they ran down there and grabbed him and put him in chains and said, what have you done? They, people want to kill you. And so they took him to what would be a safe house. And he's walking up the steps. He said this in church. He said, just give me a chance to address these people. Then he began to speak to them in the Hebrew tongue. When he heard them speak in Hebrew, they listened. They quietened. They listened. They began to tell them about his life and how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and how he was a persecutor of this way of these Christians. How he had met Christ and his life was transformed and changed. And of course, the longer he went on, the more angry they got. And so the Romans, they took him aside and said, we're going to give you another opportunity and it'll be more ordered this time. And they gave him an opportunity to stand before these accusers. Chapter 23, then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewash wall. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that good? There's strength for you, isn't it? Eh? You know, Paul was no mealy mouth wee preacher. I mean, this man, could, when, he, when he got riled, I mean, he could speak up, no matter who he was standing in front of. God will strike you, you whitewash wall. That's similar to what Jesus said. They were white at sepulchers, bright and shiny on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones, full of corruption. This is what Paul's saying. There's his strength, fearless. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Paul knew the law inside out. And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Ah. So obviously he wasn't dressed as a high priest at that moment. Paul hadn't recognized him as one. But here's the, here's the beauty of Paul. Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. See how quick he is to, in a sense, apologize 
when he knew he was in the wrong? One moment he's righteously angry. And the next moment he realizes, I've done a wrong thing. Yes, he is a whitewashed wall. But I shouldn't have said that to him because he's God's high priest. And so very quickly, you see the strength and the beauty of this man. You see the strength and the meekness. He was quick to say, hold his hands up and say, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that to God's high priest. No matter, even though he was a devil, (laughs) and he was, but nevertheless. So here he is. I love the little letter just before the book of Hebrews uh, that he wrote to Philemon. Philemon was the Christian businessman who was a dear friend of the Apostle Paul. You remember he had a, a young slave uh, who ran away. Anisimus ended up in trouble and ended up in contact with the Apostle Paul who led him to Christ. And in the providence of God, this young slave very quickly realized that the Apostle Paul is a dear friend of his master. How convenient is that? God can organize all kinds of meetings and divine appointments. And this is one for this young slave. And so Paul said, I'm going to send you back to your master. You've done a wrong thing. But no doubt you've repented You've come to Christ, so I'm going to send you back, but I'm going to write a little letter of explanation to my friend. Take it with you, and here's the little letter. And it's beautiful. It's a classic. You ought to read it. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus by Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. That's a good start, isn't it? That's going to get you a little bit of favor right away, isn't it? You see how gentle he is and how nice he's writing here. Hearing of your love and faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul genuinely loved this man, genuinely had a high regard for him. He's not just shining him on here. He's using beautiful words. He's going to touch his heart, but he means every word of it. And then he says, For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Isn't that lovely, isn't it? Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. How can you refuse this man? Whatever he's going to ask you, how can you refuse him? He's saying how much he loves you 
and how great you are in his estimation. And then he said, but I, you know, I'm old now and I'm a prisoner. Then he says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, my son, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. Onesimus means profitable. So it's a plain words here. Who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing. That your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But now how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If you then count me as a partner, receive him as you would receive me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted uh, to you. Isn't that lovely? What a masterpiece of writing. Encouraging, a little bit of cajoling, <laughs> touching the heartstrings for this young man so that he's received back. Old F.W. Borum, a favorite writer of Jason and mine, one time there was a particular man who was giving him a really hard time. He was nasty. He was not nice to him. He was awful. And he decided to write this really, really strong letter to him. He was going to just give him what for. And he wrote the letter. And he went out that night to post it. And he was about to post it. He stopped. And he thought, do you know what? I think I'll sleep in that. Because it really was a strong letter. I think I'll sleep in that. So he took it home. And he went to bed. Next day he got up. And he was going to post the letter. And he met a man that he knew. And the man said, did you hear about old John, whoever he was? Did you hear about him? He says, no, what happened? He says, he died last night. Oh, he says, I didn't hear that. Ah, he says, it was a pity. He says, he had an awful life. He had a very, very difficult life, that man. And he says, boy, was I ever glad I didn't send that letter. <laughs> Our lives are to be strong but they're also to be beautiful. Verses 11 and 12 mentions jewels, sapphires, agates, pleasant stones, pearls. What is a jewel? Alan Redpath, the late great preacher, said, a jewel by nature is simply a lump of stone, possibly some form of clay. But how does a lump of stone or clay turn into a jewel? Redpath says, by an extraordinary process called crystallization. 
The lump of stone or clay over a prolonged period of time comes under immense heat and pressure until it crystallizes. He further says, and I like this, a jewel is no more than a bit of ordinary clay which has passed through an extraordinary experience. <laughs> if you can withstand the heat and the pressure of trial and difficulty, you'll no longer just be clay, you will be a beautiful jewel. Your pains will become gains. I will lay thy foundation with sapphires. Sapphires are blue, so they tell me. Isn't that so? Sapphires are blue. Blue is the color of grace in the Bible. Grace is often symbolized by the color blue. Mount Sania, with its black clouds, with its thunderings, its lightnings, its smoke, its fire, speaks of judgment and justice. But the blue skies speak of grace and mercy. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel 126, God's throne is seen in the likeness of a sapphire surrounded by a rainbow. It speaks of grace and mercy, doesn't it? The tabernacle and its furnishings, the priest and his attire was all liberally garlanded with blue. Blue could be seen in the veil and in the curtains, the doors and the gates. Blue lace tied the high priest's mitre to his head. It was blue lace that tied the breastplate of judgment to the linen ephod. The priest's robe was olive blue. Whenever the tabernacle furnishings had to be transported through the wilderness, they had to be covered with a covering of blue. God lays our foundations with sapphires, with grace, with mercy, with strength, with beauty. Your stones will be fair colors. Amen? Where would we be tonight without the grace of God in our lives? I will lay thy foundations with sapphires. The Bible tells us that we are to grow in grace. That is the environment with which we are to grow. You go and grow your tomatoes, you get one of those grow bags, you wrap a hole in it, you put the seeds in. Isn't that what you do, John Greer? And you grow those big tomatoes because it's in its right environment. It's made for it. The soil that it's in is made for it, for growth. And we grow in grace. And I will make thy windows of agates. An agate is an odd kind of a stone. It's neither totally clear nor totally dull. If you hold it up to light, you can see through it, but not clearly. It's a bit like the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 and 12, but now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part 
but then I shall know even as I am known. We can only see partially now. We can't see the end from the beginning like God can. So we have to walk every day. Give us this day our daily bread. Every day is a walk with God. And we don't always see the end of our problems and our difficulties that we may be facing. But we can trust Him who knows the end from the beginning. Amen. Difficulties are like that. It's not easy to see the purposes of God through them. But we've got to trust God knows what He's doing. And if the trial lasts a bit longer than we hoped, we still got to trust Him. Like the preacher said this morning, sometimes the difficulty, God deals with it immediately, but sometimes it's over a period of time, but we still got to trust Him, haven't we? And gates of carbuncles or pearls. In New Jerusalem, each gate is made of a pearl, one single pearl. You know how pearls are made, don't you? Or how they're formed, I should say. Mostly by oysters. It can be very rare, but a clam or a mussel can produce a pearl, but rarely ever does. But it's the oysters. And there's an organ within an oyster called a mantle. And it's the mantle who uses up the minerals that the oyster sucks in and then it, it secretes that and it builds its shell and it covers the inside of the oyster with what we call mother of pearl or nacre, that shiny, beautiful stuff. And if an irritant, oftentimes we say if sand gets in, but actually it rarely is, ever sand causes this, but maybe a parasite. And if it gets into the shell between the mantle and the shell, it causes irritation. In order to deal with the irritation, the mantle starts to secrete that nacre over it. It layers again and again and again and again. And that's what forms the pearl. And pearls can be very, very beautiful. It takes a lot of oysters. You, you could... <laughs> You could dive to the bottom of the sea and you could get a thousand oysters before you get one pearl. That's why there's so many cultured pearls where people have oyster beds where they deliberately put something into the oyster to make sure that it's going to secrete and secrete and make a pearl. What does the Bible say in Romans 12, 21? Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Keep on releasing the nacre of praise, nacre of praise to God, the nacre of the Word of God, the nacre of the blessing of God, the nacre of the grace of God. Keep on covering that irritant, that problem, that hurt, that situation until you turn that pain into a pearl, until you turn that battle into a blessing. I will make your gates of pearls. And then finally, Malachi 3, 16 and 17. Don't turn to it. Then those who feared the Lord spoke one to another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. 
They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. If you look at your margin, it says, when I make them my special treasure. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. In that day, when I make them my special treasure, my jewels. If we could only catch a glimpse of how much God loves us in his son. Of how precious each and every one of us is to the father because we are in his son. We are his precious jewels. Some of you may have a wee jewel on your third finger of your hand tonight. Some of you may have a wee jewelry box stashed away with a few wee bits of jewels. Maybe there's some bling there that looks like the real thing but isn't. But who knows, maybe you've got the real McCoy. Jewels have to be polished, haven't they? When they're dug up out of the ground or they're taken out of that oyster, they have to be polished to be seen at their best. And that scripture, all thy children should be taught of the Lord. We're still being taught. We haven't quite fully passed all the exams yet. In fact, we've had to reset a few. Have you reset a few exams that the Lord gave you that you didn't pass the first time and he gives you again and again till you get it right? What is he doing? He's polishing us up, making us into the jewels that he wants for himself. God lays your foundations with sapphires, with agates, with pearls, with pleasant stones and fair colors so that we might be his strong and beautiful jewels for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that you see us in your Son differently than we can ever imagine seeing ourselves. You see us as jewels. And Lord, even the polishing, even though at times it is uncomfortable, but it's for our good and for your glory. So we thank you, Lord, tonight that you do love us, that we are your sons and daughters that we are your family, that we are your precious jewels. And we bless you for that. As we go into a new working week, we pray, Lord, that we will take with us into this week your favor and your blessing and your anointing and your witness and your love and mercy and grace and everything that you are, Lord, exhibit that through us to a lost world this week. Those that we come into contact with May something of Christ shine through us and touch their lives. Help us, Lord, to be those jewels that sparkle, that attract something that's beautiful, the eye of the beholder that will point them to Jesus. So we give you thanks for this in Christ's name. Amen. <music>
thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. For more messages like this one, visit us online at www.mpc.org.uk. You will also find a selection of informative videos at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal.